If you have your Bibles, I'd like to start off this morning in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and you pray for me as I'm still in the process of gathering my thoughts on the things that we have before us here and begin to look at this late yesterday evening and see a lot of things in this that I believe would, would do us some good. The Apostle Paul starts off this 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians and says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual drink. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, uh, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We're reminded as we read God's Word, and sometimes we may get the idea that the Old Testament is no longer valid for us today, that we are a New Testament church, and certainly we are a New Testament church, but that does not, uh, that does not make it invalid. The Old, the, the Old Testament does not make the Old Testament invalid. There's much validity, there's much that we can glean from the Old Testament, and the Lord here has inspired the Apostle Paul to bring out some of those things and to be reminded of the children of Israel and how they were chastened of God in the wilderness. And so it is a reminder for us. He says they were, now these things in the sixth verse were our examples. So they are examples to us now. He says, but with many God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now the people that he's talking about that were overthrown in the wilderness were the children of Israel. Each time that we look at it and see God's judgment upon uh, those uh, the, the Israelites, we see it upon his covenant people. His promised people, his covenant people as far as who, those whom he coveted with. Uh, went into covenant with um, in, in Abraham. And so we see that these are God's people, but yet at the same time, it says that God was not well pleased with them. So we see, first of all, that God, we can do things that uh, would cause God not to be well pleased with us. Now, that doesn't take away that He is still our Father. He, he remains our Father. He says over in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. He said over in the third chapter of Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. But we do see how that these people in, uh, of Israel, these examples that were brought up, were consumed in the wilderness. 
But the Lord says, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You see, we have to rightly divide God's Word. We can be consumed after our own lust in this life as a child of God, but it will not utterly separate us from the everlasting love of God. He has loved us with an everlasting love. We go with our thoughts there to Psalms in 89, and uh, scriptures there that uh, we can just about quote, but I think we'll go to it just to make sure we don't miss, miss something important here. He says in the uh, Psalms uh, 89, he says, I will, in, let's start in verse 27, also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore and my covenant shall be steadfast with him. Now this is God the Father talking about God the Son. He goes on to say, his seed uh, will his seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my laws and walk not uh, and walk not in my judgment, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, what does he say? Does he say that's okay? I'm your father, and because I'm your father, I will love you, and I will just will just. We'll just sweep it under the carpet. There was a lot of times growing up, I wish my dad would have said that. <laughs> but he didn't say that. Uh, he didn't say, well, son, we'll just, we'll just pretend like this didn't happen. I wanted him to say that, and, and I wanted to pretend like it didn't happen, uh, but he didn't. And he uh, used the rod of iron, that is, his hand uh, on me whenever I would do wrong. But it still reminded me that I had an authority over me. And that authority was my father, my, the one that loved me, the one that took care of me, the one that nurtured me, my mother and my father. But he goes on to say, he says, if they do these things in the 32nd verse, then will I visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. You know what he's saying? God's saying, I'm going to punish you for it. You know, we talked about the, the, the covenant of God that He has made with His people. And over in John 10 and 27, we can read over there that we cannot fall out of God's hands. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man uh, take them out of my hand, for my Father which gave them me is all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we see there that we cannot fall out of the hand of God. But then we go over to the 10th chapter of Hebrews, and the Apostle Paul tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He says we can't fall out, but yet the Apostle Paul says in the 10th chapter of Hebrews that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That falling into the hands, we, you see, we've got to rightly divide. We cannot fall apostatize. We are in God's hands and we are His regardless of what we do, but we can fall into His hands of judgment, His hand of chastening or chastisement now in this life. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And when the Apostle Paul 
uh, and we won't go there and, and, and bring that scripture up, but you're free to after church today. In the 10th chapter of Hebrews, he's talking about his people. He's not talking about dead alien sinners. He's talking about children of God. And so we realize in this life that we have a heavenly Father who loves us. And Paul says in another place in the 8th chapter of Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of, of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can't be separated from that. And I, and I, I find a great cause of rejoicing in that and knowing that God loves us eternally speaking. It does, I didn't listen. Did I say God loves everything we do? I said God loves us. God loves you. You loved your children growing up. You still love your children. But did you love everything that they did? <laughs> no. But did that take away your love for your children? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God loves us, as we've already said, with an everlasting love. He said, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Drawn thee to, to, to him. We have been drawn in the bosoms of God because of his everlasting love that he had for us nevertheless we can fall into the hands of a uh, of the judgment of God in this life and we read that this is what happened uh, to the children of Israel when we when we read this over here back to the first uh, first Corinthians chapter 10 he gives us four examples here in, in verses 7 through 10. And each one of those starts off with neither be ye. Don't, don't be this. Don't, now the reason why he's bringing this up and the examples that he is using are all Old Testament things that happened to the children of Israel. And why is the Lord putting them here? Well, we just talked about it. It's for an example. An example for us. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. You see that really what that does right there is it really just knocks fatalism right in the head, right between the eyes. It really just discards absolutism because the Lord is instructing us through the, through the Apostle Paul uh, uh, is inspiring the Apostle Paul to write and to tell us that we are to abstain from these things. We are not to do these things. While the absolute would say, if you do it, that's just part of who you are and part of what you are have been, um, if you will, predestinated to do. And that's not that is a that is the the wrong uh, use of the word predestination. And and we won't get into that this morning, but. But here he tells us that these are an example for us that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now let me ask you something. Are we able to lust after evil things? Absolutely. Isn't that why we have this heating? I mean, if we weren't able to lust after evil things, there would be no examples given us of those that did that. And they are examples for us. So the first example that we see, he says in the seventh verse here of the uh, of the tenth chapter, neither be ye idolaters 
as were some of them. Now you'll realize that each in each one of these cases, in each one of these uh, four cases, he says, as some of them. As some of them. He's not including all of Israel. He's saying that some of them did these things, and though some that did something uh, were, were chastened uh, for it, and some of them were, and we'll see, were chastened very harshly. In other words, they were destroyed uh, for one by one reason or another because of the chastening hand of God. But neither be idolaters, as were some of them, but as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if you have a good Bible and there's a good center column there, it's going to tell you to go uh, to Exodus. It's going to refer you, rather, uh, to the incident that happened in Exodus 32. So we'll turn our Bibles now to Exodus chapter 32. Now, you remember here we're talking about idolatry, idol worship. And that is a real problem that we can have in this life. What John said before he closed out First John, the last thing, well, the very last thing he said was amen. But the thing just before that, he says, and ye little children, keep yourselves from idolatry. And my little children, keep yourselves from idolatry. Idolatry is putting other things before God. We can go over to the book of Colossians and in the third chapter of Colossians and in the third verse, we won't turn there, but Colossians chapter, th- uh, chapter three and verse five, uh, talks about the things that we're to abstain from, that we're to mortify the members of the body. That we're to mortify, and he, and he begins to name off some, and mortify means to cause to die. It needs to be a dying away. You see, we're living in this life, and you know, in another place, the Apostle Paul says, mortify the deeds of the flesh in Romans. So we're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, and you shall live. If ye through the Spirit, he says, do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. But if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. So we see here there is a mortifying. That is a dying away. And our lives ought to be such a way that each and every year, and by the way, Happy New Year to everybody, <laughs> ought to be that in every each year we ought to be able to look back and see have we improved ourselves in our in our walk with God. Now I don't. I'm not saying look at where you need to be. Right? Because that's, that's way out here. For me, for me it is. I'm not going to put y'all where I'm at with that. But I am saying that each and every year we ought to be mortifying the deeds of the flesh. We ought to be something, we ought to be in our life living a more and more godly life. I didn't say to the point that we're without sin. You're not going to be without sin so long as you're draped in this old flesh. You're going to be a sinner. That's one of your natures. But as a child of God, we ought to have the desire through the instruction of God's Word to improve ourselves 
each and every year in the service of God, if we get to the point that we think we've gone as far as we need to go, then I've got some news for you. You haven't even started yet. You haven't even started. If you get to the point where you think you're as good as you need to be, and you're there, you haven't even, you haven't even reached the, uh, the line yet. So we ought to be mortifying the deeds of the body. He also says in that third chapter of Colossians uh, that we're to mortify covetousness. We're to mortify covetousness. Which is, he says, which is idolatry. So even covetousness is idolatry. When we're, and covetousness is just coveting things in your life. In other words, coveting is, is putting other things before God. That's idolatry. That's what the, that's the Bible definition of idolatry. A lot of times you don't have to go to Merriman Webster or Noah Webster uh, to look up the definition of the of a word in the Bible. A lot of times if you search it out enough, it'll tell you what the definition of something is. So we see that covetousness is idolatry. And then we go over here into the 32nd chapter of, of Exodus and what happens here? The Lord, uh, Moses is sent up on the mountain. To receive the laws of God. And nobody else was to go. Or even touch the mountain. And not so much as a beast the Bible says. Would even touch the mountain. Or, or, or they would be dursed through with a dart. In other words you were going to die. If you, if you got close. So, so Moses goes up there. And here is Aaron. Uh, with the children of Israel. Down here in this valley. And they begin to wander. What's up with Moses? Where's Moses been? And so we see that covetousness or idolatry, if you will, begins to creep in. And a lot of times it's that way in our lives. When we begin to think, well, I'm just getting cold now and I just haven't been around the Lord a lot lately. I mean, you, you understand what I'm talking about manifestly and, and, and I just haven't been doing this or just haven't had that oneness with God that I would like to have. Uh, well, maybe it's because you're seeped in idolatry or maybe it's because you just need to wait a little bit more like they needed to do for Moses to come down off that mountain. You see, the God visits us from time to time in our lives. He visits us. Now, God is with us. God speaks to us through His Word in a way that we can understand it. God is with us 24-7. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. God is always with us. But He visits us in that manifested way that we can feel His presence from time to time. It is not like that all the time, is it? It's not like it. Wouldn't that be great? But in the meantime, what we do between those times of visitation is to patiently wait on the Lord and not to put other things before us like the children of Israel began to do here. So what does Aaron tell them to do? Aaron tells them to break off their earrings, all the gold that they had, and to cast it into the fire, basically. And, and uh, where did they get all that gold? You remember? 
They didn't have that gold while they were uh, while they were in, in a bond servant. I mean, while they were slaves in Egypt, they were get the Egyptians gave them all that gold before they left. It was a blessing of God that they had all these riches, and they took all these riches and they melted it all down and fashioned two calves out of the out of the gold that was there. And listen to what Aaron would say in the fourth verse of the 32nd chapter of, um, of Exodus. <clears throat> he says, and he received them, he says, and all the people in the third verse break off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron and he received them at their hand and fashioned it in, with a graving tool. Notice that he's fashioning something with a graving, what? A graving tool. Man is not to be worshipped with, God is not to be worshipped with man's hands, Paul says, as though he needed something. And here he is, he's gravening, uh, he's gravening this, uh, with his hands, and he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a golden calf, and they said, what did they say? Now this was after they had seen the Lord part the water. They had, and they went over on dry ground. Now that's impossible for me to understand that, but nothing's too hard for God. And it's certainly not impossible for me to believe that it happened, because I believe with God all things are possible. And, but they were there, they were eyewitnesses of that. They went through, they were, they passed through three days later. You remember where they were at? At the bitter waters of Beray. And they said, you brought us, they couldn't drink the bitter water and you brought us here just to die after they had already seen this great, uh, this great miracle. And after they had rejoiced and sang aloud the song of Moses, the Redeemer of Israel, talking about, uh, you know, in reference to God, and we see now that they're already in disparity again. And so that, that is the track. There's a track record here. There's an MO, if you will. When you read their wilderness wanderings that they're, they they constantly go and, and they, and, and then they just lose hope. Well, here they've lost hope. But listen to what they said. They said in this fourth verse, these be thy gods. These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So is our what a what an opposing view that we have here of the children of Israel. And because of what they thought was Moses' delay, Moses wasn't delaying, by the way. He was there on the mountain with the Lord. But because of their supposed, of the, of the supposed delay of Moses, they fell into, they fell into idolatry. And they begin to worship something other than God. And as I've already said, it's easy for us to do in this life. And of course, God was very wrath with them, was very wroth with them, was very, was very mad with them. And then we, and there's so many other things that we can go on and, and talk about. And the Lord was just going to consume them. And, and Moses, as they, 
as a typical mediator mediated between God and Israel as, as Jesus, a great type of Jesus Christ that mediates for us between God and, and, and us. And so we see that Moses is mediating here, and because of that, God spares them. And he goes down, and listen to what he says. And he talked to Aaron in the 25th verse. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Who was on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. What had Aaron already just said? Just a verse before that? Moses said, how did this come about? Now you remember we already read that he fashioned them with tools. Aaron tells Moses, well, we just threw the gold in, yeah, and poof. They just, they just came out on their own. What is that he said? And he said to them, who's, uh, he says, uh, so they gave it to me. He says, uh, then I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. The calf just, just popped out of there on its own. So, but the Bible's already instructed us that Aaron was sitting there fashioning it. I, I suggest that Aaron's caught between a rock and a hard place now. I mean, let's be honest, Aaron, it was fashioned. We already got the scoop on that from a few verses earlier. But the point is, is that we can fall into covetousness. I mean, uh, excuse me, into idolatry, which covetousness is idolatry, coveting other things. When when we're not here on, on Sunday uh, morning because we have something else going on, um, you know, entertainment, or I'm not suggesting that there aren't times that we can't make it and there aren't reasons that we can't make it to church. I, I, I understand that, uh, I understand that well myself and, and with everybody else that there, there are times that we can't make it. But if we, if we, if we, we need to, we need to survey why we're not at God's house. <laughs> And if we're surveying that reason, are we putting something before God? Are we coveting something else? Are we, are we saying, well, this is more important that now I understand there are times I'm not, listen, I understand there are times we have to, we have to, people have to take vacations. We enjoy the same as well. The times people have to work, people are sick. Uh, for what reason? There's, there's other reasons. Uh, but I'm talking about general. And I think everybody in here is intelligent enough to know what I'm talking about. That there, but there are times that, that we can, and we can put other things before us, or before God, and covet those things, and God is not well pleased with those things. So let's go on to, let's go on to verse 8 here. First one was, neither be idolaters, as some were, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, he goes on to say, Neither let us commit fornication, as some then committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. So we're not to even commit fornication. And the example of that is found in God's Word. And he gives us a reference here in Numbers 25 
uh, in t- Numbers 25 and 1. So we go to Numbers 25 and 1. And we see here the example that is given us of what has already happened prior to that of Balaam. And there's a story here, um, but we won't get too far into that story. But you remember Balak came to get Balaam to curse God's people Israel. And Balaam doesn't go the first time, but then he's enticed to go the second time. And he, he goes and... And, and three different times on three different mountains where he's looking out upon the great tribe of Israel, he burns uh, an altar uh, to the Lord. He sacrifices unto the Lord to get God's answer, will Israel be cursed? And each and every time, the answer is no. <laughs> I am not going to curse. In other words, God says, I'm not going to curse whom I have blessed. And that's, and that's what Balaam was going back to tell Balak. Well, Balak and the people were scared because they had already heard about all the victories that Israel had had. And that they were overcoming a lot of their, a lot of their foes. And so, what Balaam said, now this is the doctrine of Balaam that the Lord inspired John to write about in the second chapter of Revelations concerning the church at Pergamos. You remember the, the, the church there at Pergamos, he says, and you have those there that that, that uh, had the doctrine of, of Balaam. Okay. The, and this is the, and well, he goes on and tells you over, I'm not going to go to the, to the second chapter of Revelations. Uh, okay. Let me go to the second chapter of Revelations. Uh, in the, in the second chapter of Revelations, he says here, talking to, uh, Pergamus, He says in the twelfth verse, and to the angel of the church at Pergamos, right, these things saith he which hath the sword with two edges. Uh, let's go down to the fourteenth verse. But I have a few things against thee, because thy house there then that hold the doctrine of Balaam, which taught Balak uh, to stump to cast stumbling block, a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. What Balaam told Balak is basically, he said, I can't, God's not going to curse those whom he's blessed. I mean, it's not going to happen. But I'm going to put it in my words now, what Balaam told Balak. He said, Balak, if you want God to turn against his people, you'll have to get them to start causing whoredoms. You're going to have to start having them cause fornications against other nations, against other tribes. And then God will come and He'll judge that nation. He'll judge His people. Now that's a terrible doctrine, isn't it? But that's the doctrine of Balaam. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. They sent Moabitish women there. And the men began to commit fornication with the Moabitish women. And it began to disrupt and, and cause a, uh, and cause discord in the camp of Israel. And of course, God was very angry with this. You know, the Bible tells us, even in the fifth chapter of Matthew, talking about fornication, that if a man even looks upon a woman and lusts in his heart, in his heart, if a man lusts, looks on a woman and lusts in his heart, 
he hath committed adultery, he hath already committed adultery with her. Now, now what I've always thought was interesting in that is the Lord inspired those words, he hath already committed adultery with her. In other words, you know, there are some people, some females that dress in certain ways that they shouldn't be dressing in. And again, I think we're all intelligent here this morning. Whether it be how they dress in the church or how they dress out in, out in the public. But I want to tell you, if you're dressing in such a way as to try to catch the eyes of a man, you're as guilty as that man is. Now, I'm not saying that that man is not guilty. I heard a preacher say one time, if God struck every man dead that had that thought in his heart, you'd have to step over everybody going down through town. You'll get it in a little bit. But they said, but, but what I'm saying is, he is guilty, but she is, she is just as guilty for her provocative, provocative way of dressing or her provocative way of, of acting. So we see here that there's fornication now into the camps and, and the Lord is gonna, is gonna, he says here in the first verse of the 25th chapter of Numbers, and Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So we see there that there began to be a problem and God brought on a, a plague. He says in the ninth verse, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Well, we just read that over in in, fir, in the tenth chapter, First Corinthians, but it doesn't say twenty. I'm just bringing this up for trivia. It doesn't say twenty four thousand in the tenth chapter, First Corinthians. It says twenty and three thousand, twenty three thousand. So which one's right? They're both right. Because what he says in the, in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians is that there fell in one day 20 and 3,000. He didn't say that in one day there were 20 and 3,000 that fell. Right over here in Numbers it says, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. So it was 23,000 in one day, but total it was 24,000 that lost their life. There was only 23 that lost their life in one day, and perhaps another thousand a day or two or a week, a week later because of the plague that was upon them. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of people look at those differences and say, well, the, the, you know, the scriptures, uh, they're, they're contradicting themselves. No, they're, they're not contradicting themselves. Again, if we got a contradiction, it's between the ears. Uh, but we see here, um, that they were committing fornication and doing those acts. You know, when we go over to David, as an example, uh, David committed, uh, fornication, didn't he? In the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, let me turn over there to the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. And it says here in the 11th chapter, I'm running out of things to, it says here in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, uh, it says, And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now it was a time of battle. And that's always been intriguing, isn't it? That they always had a time of battle. Well, I suggest 
to you this morning that that time of battle is is in the springtime when when the grass begin to actively start growing and because I want to tell you if you had a bunch of cattle you had to keep your land in order that you could sustain your cattle your sheep and and all those things and I, and I'm sure there was a lot of jockeying uh, a lot of warring for that for those large pieces of land to be able to take care of the herds and things. That's that's free. I'm not going to charge you for that. But I'm also going to tell you I don't know if that's right or not. But that's just a thought. Uh, but we see here that they that they were um, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David rose from off his bed. Now, first of all, first question I got is first of all David's decided not to go out there. He's going to stay home. And secondly, he doesn't rise up from his bed until evening tide. Well, David, what you doing laying in the bed all day long? I mean, here he is at evening tide, and then he rises up from his bed, uh, from off his bed, and walked upon the roof of the house, king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. You know, there had been more sin occurred by the eyes, by what we see. You know, that's, that's what caused Eve to sin. She saw that the fruit was good for her. David saw this woman Bathsheba bathing and, and lusted after her. Achan saw in the war, uh, Achan saw the Babylonian garments and, and desired those things. So many times it's our eyes that get us in trouble when we see something. Our eyes, our natural eyes are the door to sin. Then we can allow sin to enter into our hearts if we're, if we're not careful. But we understand the story and what happened here that David, um, committed this sin and had Uriah slain. And we understand why, uh, Uriah, he brought Uriah back. Now Uriah is Bathsheba's Husband brought Uriah back from the battle and said, "Go." He found out that Bathsheba was pregnant. David did and says, "Go, go, spend some time with your wife." See, he's wanting to try to cover this whole thing up. Well, Uriah, you know what he says? He says, "I, I can't do that." While my men are out there at battle, I can't go into my wife. And he slept on the floor. He says, "I'm not, I'm not going to do that." And so he, Uriah, got gets up the next day. And he says, I'm, I'm going back to battle. And David sends, sends a message to make sure that he's out on the very front line so that he's killed, so that he's destroyed. And so David, in essence, the Bible tells us, is the one that killed Uriah. He didn't kill him physically with, with his own hand, but because of what he instructed them to do and putting him out on the very front, he ended up getting killed. All right? So the story... I want, I want you to see how, how this is a great, uh, a, a great reminder to us. And that, you know, we reap what we sow in this life. Whether it's good, the Bible says, Paul said in Galatians, whether it's good or whether it's bad, God's not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. But we see here that, that David tries to hide this. And, Sometime later, the Lord brings Nathan to send David a message. And he says to Nathan, or Nathan goes to David and says to David, he says, there's a story here about this rich man that had a bunch of sheep and this poor man that had one little ewe lamb, one that would eat out of his own bowl. 
One that basically what I'm talking about here, this little ewe lamb was this poor man's pet. It was his pet. He ate with him. He ate out of his bowl. He took care of him. And the Bible goes into great detail to show us that there, he's, he's, you know, he's got a pet here. And there was a man came and, and this, this, this man that had all these lambs, instead of killing one of his to feed the guest, he sends them to go get that man, that poor man's ewe lamb, to kill it and bring it to the feast. Nathan goes, what shall be done to this man, to David? David was furious. He says, he shall be killed. He shall be, justice shall be brought upon him. He shall die. And he's also going to have to pay fourfold. You see that in the sixth verse of the twelfth chapter of Second Samuel, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. And you can go and you can read that over in, in um, Exodus, where that's the law. If you if you killed a ewe lamb, you restored it. You restored it fourfold. Well, guess what happens? David, it says, uh, "Thou art." And Nathan says, "Thou art the man. Thou art the man. You have done this, David." You've done this. You've taken you've taken a poor man and you've and you've taken his wife and and you went and you've slaughtered him. This is he's saying this is about you. But he says, nevertheless, the Lord has instructed me to tell you that he's not going to take your life, but the sword shall never depart from your house. Now you remember I told you what the law is, one to four? Did you know that David had lost, lost after that he lost four sons? You see, the Lord's going to get back. We're not going to get away with it. You remember, he, he, first of all, he lost the son with Bathsheba. And then he, then he lost Amnon. And then he lost Absalom. And then he lost Adonijah. Four sons. One to four. The Lord told him through the mouth of Nathan, that this sword's not going to depart from your house. You see, God will come to us and visit us in our transgressions. And these are all examples for us. These are all examples for us on how we are to conduct ourselves and how we are to live in this life. That we use these as examples. That we, that we look to these things and that we're reminded, dear child of God, that God is the same yesterday today and forever. God has not changed one bit. God has not changed. God has not changed His promises. God has not changed His warnings. God has not changed giving us examples and warnings of those that have done others, uh, that have done things and, and, have, and, have lost, and have lost their lives. Some, In some cases, thousands, as we've already seen. So next Sunday, Lord will, and we'll take this up if the Lord blesses us, and we'll continue on with the remainder of this. And uh, but I appreciate very much your your good time this morning.